Welcome back to This Food Thing podcast and season three with me, Gemma Richards. As before, I invite a special guest to share their experience with food, namely friend or foe, whether it is easy or less so. In light of the first two seasons, it appears to be foe for many, as it was for me. But this doesn't have to always be. Exciting news. We started a crowdfunder for the podcast and to help fund anyone suffering with an eating disorder unable to afford one-to-one therapy. Check the link in our show notes, donate, leave a review. We're always so grateful. Because you know if this area of your life is skewed, then so is the rest. It's never just about food. Hi, welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. Today I'm here with Hope Virgo. Hope is a mental health activist. Her campaign, Dump the Scales, 7,000 Signatures and Rising, challenges the notion that treatment for eating disorders is bound to people's BMI. In other words, to qualify for treatment on the NHS, NHS even, you must be thin enough. Hope is author of Stand Tall Little Girl, her anorexia memoir, a public speaker, and clearly a mover and shaker, banging on all the right doors and saying all the right things to bring about real legislative change. Hope is here because I read her recent interview in the Guardian's Outspoken series, and as soon as I'd finished, I sent her a message, and she messaged right back. Hope, welcome to this Food Thing podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. How are you today? Yes, um, I'm good. Um, it's yeah, I feel like it's going to be quite a sunny, hot day in London, so I'm looking forward to that. In all honesty, oh really? That's nice. I'm in the countryside. It's just clouded over, and I think it's going to rain later. Oh. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> maybe we'll get the London sun at the weekend. Um, yes. So, uh, yes, food, friend or foe? It's such a difficult question. Isn't um, it? Yeah, I and I. Was, so I think for me, it's probably a bit of both. So I think in the past, it's been a real foe, but is now becoming much more of a friend. In what way was it a foe? Uh, so I think I was so scared of food for so long and so afraid of it. And I think probably there are certain foods that I still struggle to have. Um, just from the way that I was brought up, I think living in recovery from an eating disorder, it's always got a bit of a I guess, a bit of emotion around it and can be quite toxic in places. But I'm now creating a space, I think, where it is becoming more of a friend through my own journey of recovery, but also in the way that I do things and do mealtimes um, as well. So can we go back a bit? Why, why were you scared of food and when did that start? Yeah, so I developed an eating disorder when I was about 12, 13. Wow. But I think kind of looking back even beyond that, I was always slightly nervous about food. I was very conscious of what I looked like. Um, I was always on a different diet or some sort of kind of control element within kind of my day-to-day routine around food. And when I was about 12, 13, it all kind of came to a head. Um, I had quite a dysfunctional family and really struggled to kind of process a lot of my emotions and feelings. Mm. And the food became something that if I controlled, if I calorie counted, if I obsessed over it, then it would actually make me feel better in the short term. And I loved how it made me feel. I loved that kind of sense of purpose and value that the eating disorder gave me. And it was at that point that actually I began to really, really hate any sort of food because I had this kind of feeling when I ate it that I was just so disgusted with myself and so out of control. What food did that start with? Did you, was it bread? Was it, what, can you remember where you just went, oh, I'm not going to eat that anymore? Yeah, um, when I was about 12, 
I actually announced on a Sunday lunch um, <laughs> that I was going to be a vegetarian. Right, okay. Um, and uh, I think I did that because in my family, we always had a family meal in the evenings. My mum was a very good cook, so kind of made that effort to do those big family meals. And I felt like by starting to introduce these subtle rules, then actually it would mean that it would just make it impossible for her to cook for me and for me to be in attendance at those meal times. Were you having I, Were you having issues with your mum anyway that were manifested in in your denial of food? Was it Was there something yeah. else going on that you were trying to control? Yeah, I think there was. I I was sexually abused. Um, and I felt, didn't feel heard in that situation at the time. Right. Um, but also didn't really know how to talk about it. And right. I think as well, I often didn't really feel good enough. I felt like there was something kind of categorically wrong with me because I'd been abused and because I wasn't like everyone else. And because of that, I think it just meant that actually by putting up this barrier around me with food, Again, yeah. it just pushed people further and further away and kind of protected me in some sense. I think that's, uh, that. Uh, I can relate to that. It is very protective, isn't it? And you do feel um, omnipotent. And, and particularly if, you're, if your control's been taken away from you and you've been violated in that way, it's very important. It's essential that you feel on top of it. Yeah, it is. And I think that's the thing with eating disorders and particularly with mine, it was it was around that control element and like just controlling the numbers, controlling the scales, controlling all of that to help me feel like actually I was in control of my life and kind of numbing, I think within that as well, like numbing a lot of the emotion around things. I think when you've been sexually abused or when you've been through any sort of trauma, Mm. if you start to focus on something else, it just serves a purpose to distract you. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And it can be really successful for quite some time. Did you, um, were you very angry? Yeah, I was. And actually it was, it was interesting. I didn't realise how angry I was, um, actually, um, for probably the entirety of my childhood. Um, right, yeah. And up until about four years ago, um, when I went back to therapy and basically had like this six month kind of bout of therapy where I was just so angry all the time. Yeah. And I'd go into these sessions and just be just, yeah, just so cross, so frustrated, like going round and round in circles about different situations because that anger was just sitting with me. I, I can really relate to that as well. I was very, very angry and I just thought, how am I ever going to get through this? How am I going to contain it? And it, it just, it filtered into everything. So maybe externally, I wasn't so angry, but internally I was just raging and so oversensitive and, um, you know, just, yeah, always, always kind of caught in a sort of victim, victim mentality. Yeah. And I totally relate to that. I think I I was definitely like that for a really long time. And I think sometimes I have to check, check in with myself and be like, I'm not the vi- like I don't need to be a victim like I can be really kind of I can win at life if I don't keep going over it in my head but I think the problem with anger isn't it it's like we're told we shouldn't be angry yeah particularly being female so then like yeah. you kind of shut it down even more and think oh I can't feel like this because everyone will judge me or everyone will think badly or whatever it is and then because of that I think I buried a lot of that emotion so so deep so when yeah. it started to come to the surface I was like I don't know how to deal with this what did it feel like in your body the anger? Yeah. Um, well, what did it look terrified. like? Terrified. I felt out of control. 
yeah, I felt like out of control a lot of the time with it. And as someone who loves to be in control, <laughs> yeah. um, I didn't know how to deal with it um, at all. My therapist at the time suggested that I went and did some boxing, right. um, which isn't my thing at all. But I think I went. I think it was one. Oh, it was like I think it was maybe just before Christmas, a couple of years ago. I went and just boxed for like probably like I don't know three minutes, just punching a bag, and yeah. I actually found it was such a release. I love boxing. I, I think for me like with being angry I just I think I found it difficult because I didn't feel like I was being heard even though I was really angry so I was getting more and more angry because I wasn't being heard and understood so did you feel like you were heard in therapy there were times when I thought I was um where I felt like she understood where I was coming from but it took me a long time to get to that space with her I think um and I think for me there were people that I wanted to hear me and yeah. whilst my therapist probably did in places, actually, there was other people that actually, you know, I was like, I want that person to hear me. And I remember actually one evening um, a few years ago, I was sitting in the garden at my mum's house talking to my older sister. Um, and I was saying to my older sister, I just want people to hear me. Like, I want to be understood. I want this. And Kate was like, sometimes you just won't be heard and you have to accept that and you have to find a way to deal with that. And it was at that point, I think, when I realized that actually sometimes in life we won't get heard. And it's then like, how do we deal with that afterwards without letting all of those destructive behaviors come back? Yes. And how do we express ourselves without also taking other people's down with us or other people yeah. down with us? I mean, obviously that's really relevant sometimes, but yes, without destroying your cherished relationships. Yeah, so no, that, definitely. That's, that's really something. And I and I think it I think it comes with experience and probably age um and and a, a kind of growing wellness doesn't it that you can handle these extreme emotions and feelings yeah and I think it's it's so important isn't it to find to find a space where you can just feel things and realize that that's okay and I think quite often for me I've just never I've never felt like I can um and it's I think that's something that I'm probably still learning I have days when stuff feels really overwhelming but yeah. I'm quite often like quite restrained in how I deal with it and get compartmentalized quite a bit and it's it's kind of frustrating at points I'm like sometimes I just wish I could just let it all out and then I'm sure it would all be fine but it's yeah, hard but to trust yourself it's that's a that's scary stuff though isn't it yeah well so what would be an example of you wanting to let it out and um, and being restrained, would you still do you still do that with your food? Are you still very um, controlled around your food when you eat, what you eat, how you eat? Um, so my eating is much better actually. Um, so I I have a dietitian that I work with, and I think for so long in my recovery, I kind of settled at being in kind of like this midway point where I didn't feel like I knew how to fully recover, and I was still scared of some food groups, and I still had rules in my head. Um, but I'm now in a space where actually I'm, I'm very much kind of getting to that final stage in recovery. But I think for me, the emotional stuff is, is something that I probably still have to work through. And I, for me, the, I guess the restrained bit is like, I, like I might get some bad news and then I'll like, we'll kind of compartmentalize until I'm on my own. And then I'll have like a 10 minute cry and then right. I'll compartmentalize it again okay. without always kind of dealing with it properly. But I don't, I think part of that is the way that I was brought up. We were very much 
taught to kind of get on with things and to keep going. And I think because of that, I feel like that's how I should deal with things and how I should cope with things. What was, um, just to go back a little bit, what were the, the messages? I mean, I understand that you were tipped over the edge from the abuse, if that's the right thing. Would you think you would have still developed eating disorders even if the abuse hadn't happened? Um, I think I think potentially. They do say now that eating disorders are quite often linked to our genetics. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, it was a combination of the abuse, a combination of not being able to kind of navigate my family situation. Right. And also not feeling good enough, like constantly yeah. feeling like I wasn't lovable. There was something yeah. wrong with me. And and I think it was probably that that actually probably fueled the eating disorder much more so than anything else. So meal times. you said that you all sat, sat down. Um, were, were they an emotional minefield sitting around the table? Yeah, they were very, very volatile a lot of the time. Okay. Okay. There was often a lot of arguments. Right. Um, so like in my in my house now, we have like, obviously there's only two of us who live here at the moment, but like we yeah. have very strict rules on kind of going for dinner with people. We set those boundaries in place beforehand. Right. And I don't have any negative emotion at mealtimes because I can't, I just, I just don't want to go back to that space. Good for um, you. And I think like when I was growing up, it just became quite toxic. And so you were, and often even things like if someone had an argument at a mealtime, you'd storm away from the meal table and wouldn't eat your food. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it's all of those kind of behaviors that you kind of learn in a weird way, but then also you don't know any difference. So you kind of normalize it and think it's okay. And I remember at times being quite shocked when I'd go to friends' houses and there weren't massive arguments at mealtimes because I'd be like, why is everyone getting, like, why is no one arguing at mealtimes? Why is there not this constant bickering or kind of arguments about food or portion size or things like that? Oh, so the arguments were about food, were they? They weren't about other things and the food was like a a, a sort of side issue? They were about anything. Um, Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm one of five. Right. Um, So there was often a lot of, I guess a lot of, emotion generally at meal times. Okay. Um, my dad would often come back from work quite late, sit down with us for 30 minutes to have the meal and then go back and finish working. Um, and there'd often be something that had kind of aggravated someone in the day that we would then be talking about. And then I'm like, I remember it like my older brother and my younger brother used to eat quite a bit. So then we'd have like an argument over who was having what yeah, um, and things like that, like really, and it wasn't always really, really kind of heated stuff, but it was just that kind of undertone of argument that was really difficult. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's like you're eating the emotions, you're eating the unresolved issues, the energetic resonance of everybody's stuff that's going on around the meal table. And yeah, exactly. And if you had those feelings anywhere about not being good enough and not being lovable, wow you know, the scene is set, isn't it? So when you, so you weren't bulimic, you were anorexic? Yeah, I was anorexic. Yeah. With a slight um, exercise addiction alongside it. What did you do for your exercise addiction? Uh, so I was in all the sports teams at school um, yeah. and also did a lot of kind of long distance running as well. But okay. it was something that I really enjoyed up until I was probably about 14, 15. And then it became something that I felt like I had to do all the time, something that I was obsessed with. Okay. Okay. And would you fuel yourself at all when you were running, when you were 14, 15, or would you eat as little as possible? Uh, it normally depended on the day. Um, 
but would tend to just try and restrict as much as I could around it, which okay. was something that I guess got easier the more I did it. But also the thing with my eating disorder was that actually, although it, I felt like it started off quite slowly, over time it got more and more and more. And because of that, I then kind of had to keep going that little extra mile to be like, oh, actually I need to do a little bit more. I need to do a little bit more. Okay, that's very interesting. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to This Food Thing with me, Gemma Richards. Welcome back to This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Hope Virgo. And we were just talking about her um, exercise addiction and running when she was anorexic, when she was 14 14, 15. And I hope I, I'd like to know, at what, uh, when did you start to feel ill and really unwell? I don't know if I ever did. Oh, um, right. In all honesty. Yeah. So there were moments when I was kind of between the age of probably 16, 17, when I was exhausted all the time, was feeling really unhappy and really struggling mentally. Um, but for me, the eating disorder made me feel like I was totally invincible. And I kept thinking, if I just keep doing what I'm doing, if I keep doing what I'm doing, then everything will be fine, that I'll be okay, that I'll be good enough. And I had that kind of constant narrative going on in my head. And I think because of that, I wasn't able to actually let myself feel unwell because I knew that if I did, I'd have like this fear of kind of not being able to keep doing what I was doing. And I'd suddenly stop in a way. Yeah. Um, and I think that was what I, that was what I really, really thrived off was that feeling of just being invincible and being able to keep doing what I was doing. So was there a pivotal moment when it all fell apart? Yeah. So after um, my GCSEs, I went away with my school friends and it was that summer holidays away with them that I had this first realization that actually the way that I exercised and ate was really, really different than everybody else. And right. I remember kind of looking around and just being like amazed that everybody else could eat what they wanted to and drink what they wanted to, because I couldn't do that. Uh -huh. And I kind of left that summer holidays and it was only a week or so. And I came back to Bristol where I grew up and kind of settled into the rest of the summer holidays and kept kind of going over it in my head and was trying to work out if other people felt really guilty when they ate or drank or didn't exercise. Um, and then eventually after that summer holidays, my school contacted my mum uh, and then mm -hmm. went to my GP. And then it was at that point that I was referred to the Children's Adolescent Mental Health Services, where I then went for about six months as an outpatient before being admitted to like an inpatient treatment. So before prior, just prior to that, just one thing that I wanted to ask you, did your family try and intervene? No. So... I think my mum knew that something was slightly going on for me. But over that holidays, I think I became very good at hiding things. Eating disorders are such secretive illnesses that you yeah. pretty much do exactly what you want to do in yeah. order to hide what is actually going on. And I just I just kept hiding it. I kept hiding it from everyone around me. Um, and then I think when I did eventually go to treatment, my mum realised that actually it had been something that had been a little bit ongoing. There was one moment in the holidays, um, actually I remember going to the dentist with my mum and the dentist pointed out that a lot of my back teeth had started to crumble. And I remember mm -hmm. my mum making like this sweeping statement around my lack of eating, but I didn't right. really kind of 
really get why she was doing it. And I got so defensive and so angry about it that we kind of drove back home, got home, had a massive argument, and then we didn't talk about it again. And I think it was, I guess it was kind of, I'm like, I'm only 31, but kind of 12, 13 years ago, no one talked about eating disorders. Like no one really knew what anorexia was. And I think because of that, my mum probably didn't really get it for quite a long time. And obviously when I ended up going into treatment, she probably brought about a hundred books on eating disorders, but it took quite a long time to get to that space. And uh, do, do you have a, a relationship with her now where you can talk about everything? Yeah, so we, 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 get, on, we get on quite well. Um, we have, I think we go through phases um, where we didn't, we didn't speak for quite a long time um, when I was in treatment. Um, and then when I left treatment, we didn't speak for probably the next couple of years. Um, but I think we've learned a lot about each other recently, particularly recently over the last couple of years. Um, and I'm now, I'm now able to have a much more honest conversation and a much more honest dialogue about things. And I think for my mum, like it must have been really difficult. And I think this quite often when I think about kind of parents or carers of people who have eating disorders, like you're watching your young person like really, really struggle. And it must be really, really difficult. And I think I quite often, I guess, forgot that. Um, and actually, I said to my sister this week, um, when I went home, um, I said to my older sister, I said, I'm, I still feel slightly angry that I was put in a treatment centre. And my older sister was like, but we didn't have a choice. And I'm like, right. I get that. But it's still, I think it's still something that probably has some emotion attached to it. So do you mean, were you sectioned? No, I wasn't. Um, but I, I was, a, yeah, I didn't have a choice about going in, was threatened with being sectioned if I didn't comply and go in. And that was because you were a day patient, but that didn't work. I'm, you said six months you were a day patient and then you were an inpatient. Yeah. So I didn't, I did one, I did have one appointment a week for six months where I'd get weighed and have therapy, but that just, it just didn't work. Like there wasn't any routine. There wasn't any structure. Um, and I think also at that point, like I still didn't really think there was anything the matter with me that needed support. I was kind of convinced that everybody else was just trying to take away this one thing in my life that made everything feel okay. And because of that, I just kept pushing people away, kept shutting things down, not wanting to talk about things with anyone. Um, and yeah, so I ended up then after that six months being admitted to a kind of an inpatient ward. And how was that on the inpatient ward? Really difficult. Yeah. Um, I'd say it was probably the hardest year of my life. Um, kind of firstly, I guess, accepting that something was the matter, but then also kind of being taken out of school. Like I missed my entire sixth, like upper sixth year. Um, so missed out on loads of stuff like that, which really, really frustrated me a lot of the time. And also I think for me being in a hospital with other people with eating disorders, I began to kind of worry that they were kind of, they needed more support than me, that maybe there wasn't, maybe there was something the matter with me, or there wasn't thing the matter with me. And this constant kind of unhealthy dialogue was always going on in my head. But I guess the reality was, was the hospital saved my life. Um, and for that, I think the treatment I got was obviously very, very good. But by the time I left hospital, I was extremely institutionalized. I stuck kind of religiously to my meal plans and my snacks throughout the day because I didn't actually know how to eat in a normal way. So how did that come about? How did you sort of relinquish control? Um, yeah, so straight after uh, hospital, I went to uni. 
And I think by my third year at uni, I definitely had relaxed a little bit more around food. Right. Um, I then went traveling for a year and actually going somewhere and being like out of like my family situation out of England, again, really, really helped me to kind of push those boundaries a little bit further. Yeah. But I do know for me that the eating disorder served a purpose for such a long time that actually when I'm feeling stressed or worried or out of control, I do want to go back to that phase where I'm controlling what I'm having, where I'm counting, where I'm managing it in that sense. And I'm now able to be kind of, I guess, distance myself from it more right. so, but it's taken like a really, really, like a really long time and also like so much work to get to that space. Yeah. Well, God, congratulations. If you were to, um, yeah, it's my pleasure. I know how difficult it is. If, can you, because it does sound like you are very separate from your eating disorder. If you were to personify it or characterize it or draw it or act it, do you know what it looks like? Does it have a form? I think it's a really, really bitchy kind of monster type figure that okay. is quite often there trying to lurk and trying to kind of seduce me and suck me back in. Um, but I think now I'm able to kind of constantly be pushing it further away. But at points I do feel it kind of telling me, oh, if you just did this, you'd be a bit happy. Or if you did it like this, then that'd be better. Or if you're feeling sad, like, don't worry, don't feel sad. Like, let's go and do this together or something. Um, and I think for me, having that dialogue with it actually really, really helps me to keep distancing myself from it. Do you ever feel compassionate towards it in the sense that it was trying to protect you and look after you? Um, the weird thing is, is I think when I first was being abused, at that point, I, I can see that it really kept me alive and it kept me going. Right. Um, but I think now I, I just hate it. I hate kind of the turmoil that it caused, not just on my life, but on my family, on my kind of brothers and sisters, and also like how much it has stopped me living a kind of a life that I probably would have much more kind of much more preferred to live yeah for sure for sure so you are um I know that you're getting married in three weeks more congratulations <laughs> it really sounds and I know from your from your work but it really sounds like you're in a a great place um I'm wondering yeah I feel like I am I think I have I guess with the wedding I do have some anxieties around it um, do you have anxiety around the food at the wedding? Yeah, like things like that. I think in the structure and what if my brain's really difficult on the day? Um, what if it makes me feel really awful? But I'm also now able, I guess, in the sense to kind of know that actually probably my body image will be really bad on my wedding day, but that'll be a projection of my feelings and my fears and all of that emotion onto my body. And because I'm able to kind of realise that and adjust to that, actually that's what then helps me to be much more rational and kind of keep going with it much more. Okay. Okay. Um, and do, do, does anyone else in your family have um, food issues? Uh, no, my, not in my direct family. My grandma had anorexia. Okay. Um, when, yeah, throughout like our, all of our childhoods. Um, Were you aware of that or was that something that you it. discovered later? I discovered it when I went into, when she, she went into hospital when she was, I think it was probably when I was in my, when I was at uni at some point, but I'd been in hospital for kind of a couple of years around that time. And I went and visited her when I was in hospital. Um, and at that point got told that she had an eating disorder. Um, 
and so knew then. But I don't think I ever really noticed any of the behaviours. But my mum, when she reflects on it, often says like, oh, she used to do, she used to have these behaviours or she did this around food, which was slightly odd. And and I think had I known about it, I probably would have been able to pick up on some of that stuff. Um, but I think it's one of those things. And I think that's one of the issues with eating disorders is we still so often think about them as like a white teenage girl's illness. Mm. So the thought of my grandma having an eating disorder, I'm like, how's that possible? And now I like, obviously I know that it's a mental health issue and it doesn't discriminate against age or sex or gender. Yeah. But actually, like, I think back then I just never would have thought that an, like an older person would have one. I think it's fascinating that it got passed on to you and not your mum, but it would have got passed on to your mum. And in some way it got converted and given to you. I think that's fascinating. I find the like genetics so interesting. I was actually, and also like the kind of behaviors that you learn as well growing up yeah, and how you can keep that, how you can keep those people around you safe in that sense as well. And your mum clearly liked to bring people around the table, albeit difficult for you, um, and and provide food and and feed her family and, and bring everyone together as a response. Yeah, she did it. And I think it was a really big part of big part of childhood, actually, kind of being really welcoming in that sense to ev- to anyone who needed to be fed or anyone who needed to stay and things like that. My mum is very good at hospitality, um, and yeah, and I think for her probably that maybe is even what made it harder when I developed an eating disorder to actually navigate that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, we're just going to take a little break. We'll be right back. You're listening to This Food Thing with me, Gemma Richards. Hi, welcome back to This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with lovely Hope Virgo. And earlier Hope was talking about, because there was so much uh, stress around the dinner table when she was a kid, and it was such an emotional minefield, she now has pretty strict rules for what happens around a table when she's eating. I'm imagining at home and when she's out and with her family. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So for me, the rules, yeah. So the rules I think have come from actually probably a lot of external things that I've heard, um, weirdly. So, and I think, I don't think diet, diet, my, I don't think diet culture causes eating disorders necessarily, but I think it definitely has a role to play. Yeah. And so all of my food rules have come from those things that I've read and those things that I've heard being discussed. And quite what they've then done is kind of formed into my belief system that actually if I break any of these rules, then something is really wrong with me or that my weight will kind of skyrocket up and then people won't love me or um, that I'll lose total control over that situation or that something bad will happen. And so for me, the only way to actually break those rules is to actually start to really, really challenge them on like a day-to-day basis and go against what the rules are telling me to do do you um okay when you're but when now when you're sitting around the table you said that you had rules about what can't happen so you said you had no negativity yeah no arguments and is it something that you negotiate with people before you sit down and eat with them no I'm I <laughs> I that probably would be the better way to do it um <laughs> but I'm very I'm like I just don't I just don't engage with it okay um so if I'm like going to have a serious conversation with someone, 
what I tend to do is organize to have a meal beforehand or a couple of hours afterhand or doing it in a more neutral place just so that there isn't any food involved. Um, But there are people that I won't go for dinner with because I know that they'll cause aggravation around the mealtime and make it really difficult for me. Or if I do go for dinner with them, if it's like a, I don't know, like something that you just have to go to, I would take dinner with me or I'd very be very, very picky and choosy about where I would go, making sure that the meal I was having was an easier meal because of a lot of that emotion. What tends to happen for me is if I have a meal that is emotionally charged with negativity, yeah. I eat my meal and then feel really guilty about it. And then I bloat yeah. so much. Yeah, I do that. And it's all in my head and everything. And I know that, but it's sometimes when you, when you're in that moment, you're like, this is just awful. I can't navigate it. I used to do that before I went out. I'd suddenly, my stomach would be like a watermelon. And then I'd manufacture an excuse for not going out because I didn't want to be yeah, seen or I didn't, didn't feel good enough or that I wouldn't look right. Or yeah, I completely understand that. So your partner, your husband-to-be, um, that's a very yeah. interesting one, isn't it? Living with someone and eating with someone and, and cooking. I imagine he's incredibly understanding. My my husband's very good with me. How How is that for you? Yeah, he's definitely had to learn a lot. Um, I think he kind of, yeah, and I think even over the pandemic, um, we've got very, very close, um, which is obviously a really good thing. Yeah. But he's kind of been thrown in at the deep end in that sense as well. And now I think he's very, very conscious of a lot of my behaviours. He's very good at picking up on things. If I maybe, I don't know, like just start, like maybe I'm being a bit silly about food. He's able to call me out on it quite directly or be like, actually, you probably should have something else. Yeah. Um, but also when I when we do go out for a meal that I've maybe found slightly harder, he'll be able to kind of help alleviate some of that. Um, actually, at the start of the year, we we decided that if we want to have children one day, I want to be able to go out and get a pastry with them if I want to. Um, yeah. And on a, a Friday, every Friday morning, we made a commitment for a couple of months to go and get a pastry and a coffee before work. Wow. And for like the first six weeks, I would literally dissect <laughs> the pastry, like beyond belief. And it was so, and I remember one day he was literally like to me, how, how much emotion and how much can you talk about a pastry? And I was like, it's ridiculous. As you're like throwing been, it across the room. <laughs> yeah, it's just so funny. And I think he's, but he's seen again, that again, like that shift in me that actually now I can just go and get a pastry. And unless I've had a really difficult week, I don't have to dissect the pastry. I can have it and then we talk about whatever we want to talk about. Um, and I think for him, that's been really, really refreshing seeing kind of how it's how I've changed in that sense. Yeah, that's terrific. That's really good news. Do you do the cooking at home? Uh, I tend to, yeah, yeah, which again is something that um, we are working on. Um, I'm, I prefer to cook because I feel like I'm, it's that control thing again, isn't yeah, 100%. it? Yeah, 100%. I feel like I'm in control of it. But um we have got much better. There was a point in the pandemic. And I think again, because of the pandemic, because of the uncertainty, because we didn't, there wasn't a lot to do. We um, got to the like place where we were planning our meals every single week and it, w- it would have been fine, but the, then we stopped doing it and I started to panic about it. Of course. Um, so now I'm able to actually kind of call myself out on that and be like, actually, do you know what? We shouldn't be planning our meals every single week. Um, because it's it's just not healthy for me to get back into that structure. Yeah. Um, and I do. Yeah. We 
we are trying to get better at him cooking for me. Yeah. Um, which is, it's a work in progress, yeah, yeah. in all honesty. I can completely relate to that. Um, re your campaign, Dump the Scales. Um, and also, is there anything that you'd like to talk about with uh, the treatment that you received, either, well, particularly the inpatient treatment? Um, yes, what, what would you like to say, say about that? Please, you know, elaborate. Yeah, so I guess with Dump the Scales, um, it was kind of born off the fact that quite often with eating disorders, they are just judged so much on a person's weight. And we get so preoccupied with what a person looks like. And if their BMI isn't, isn't low enough, then we assume that the eating disorder is not that severe. And for me, that's a, something that is just categorically wrong with the way that eating disorders are treatment. They're mental illnesses, they're not physical illnesses. And so Dump the Scales was kind of born out of my own experience of being turned away from treatment when I was 26. Um, but also when I was in hospital, actually getting to that space where I was kind of weight restored, but couldn't actually function out in the normal world with restaurants, with clothes shopping, everything like that. And I think so often with eating disorders, we we don't get to kind of the nitty gritty of the eating disorder. We just focus on the food and the weight and assume that if we tackle that, then everything will be fine. So what is the nitty gritty of your eating disorder? Or what was it? Yeah, so I think for me, mine my, my, my always comes back to a fear of rejection, a fear of not being good enough, a fear of abandonment. Right. Um, which, when I say it like that, I'm like, they're quite big fears. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, and it always comes back to that. And because I've been able to actually understand that, it helps me to actually realise that actually my eating disorder is serving a purpose, but other things can also serve that purpose. Um, and I think quite often in treatment, you don't always get to that space. We get so fixated on kind of talking about every single thing. And whilst therapy is so important, I think there also has to become a point where actually you need to learn to kind of do this on your own and learn to challenge it and learn to live kind of in that space where actually you can make that full recovery. And people need to be given the skills and coping mechanisms to do that. Was it um, when you were in treatment? I, I would imagine it's highly competitive. Yeah, it was a very, very competitive environment. And the thing that helped kind of navigate that was actually after every single meal time, we had an eating disorder group. And in the group, we would basically discuss like our feelings, our thoughts, but we'd also be able to call each other out if someone had hidden a bit of food or if we were feeling like someone was kind of comparing against us or whatever it might have been. And that did help to just kind of alleviate some of the guilt that was wrapped up in it. But I think that's the thing with eating disorders is like a lot of people, I would say, have quite a dysfunctional relationship with food. Um, and maybe struggle to some extent with some disordered eating. And personally, I think that that's just not right. Yeah, I'm just, uh, two things. It's, it's a dysfunctional relationship with the self, isn't it? That's then expressed through food. Yeah. And also, was there a culture of honesty? Do you know what I mean? That you could just s relax and thaw out and, and trust? or Because as, as you quite rightly point out eating disorders are about control and secrecy and hiding and disguising and one of the reasons I never went into a, a group or any situation like that because I knew that I'd be very competitive and start lying so I'm, I'm curious as to how that is navigated yeah and I think we we did we did do that at points right um, okay 
I think I had to get to a space where I was like, actually, I just need to focus on myself in this moment. Okay. But I, since coming out of treatment, I've never gone back to face-to-face group work because again, I'd be worried that I'd be competitive or that I'd be comparing or judging or contrasting where I'm at with something. Um, and I think that's my, that's my biggest, yeah, my biggest thing. But I do also think that actually we have to find a way where we own our triggers. Yeah. And actually, if we're triggered by a situation, we've probably still got some internal work that needs to be done, which again, is so easy for me to sit here and say. I know, but it's ongoing, um, isn't it? But, and a, a bit pops up and you're like, oh, right, I didn't, oh, right, that's still there. I didn't realise about that. And maybe it just, yeah. it's always like that. Maybe I'm, you know, I'm still negotiating and navigating, but it's so much better than it was. I'm, I'm kind of like, well, this is a good deal. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think it is, I think you, you learn... You also learn, I think, that you don't get, you don't need to get your self worth from it, and it's not your whole identity. And I think it's those things that, and those reminders that help me to just keep pushing forward in recovery. Yeah. How are you? Um, oh, I don't know. What I'm asking this. How are you with clothes shopping? Um, depends on the day, actually. So yesterday, I actually went and bought a dress randomly. Right. Um, and it was really, really easy. Um, I felt fine in it. I think it looked all right. Um. And I was in, yeah, I was able to do that. But there's also, there has been moments when I found it really, really difficult. And definitely when I first came out of treatment, I really, really struggled with clothes shopping and struggled to know what to get, what to buy, what I should be dressing like, everything like that. And um, actually recently I did clear out my wardrobe of all the clothes that I have that are probably slightly too small for me. Right. Because I was like, I don't need these clothes in my life anymore. I don't want to have them. Okay. I I did lots of baggy clothes. I've had like about a thousand pairs of baggy, baggy black trousers in my life. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do wear a lot of baggy clothes. Really well. attractive. <laughs> you know, the drawstring. My husband's like, oh my God, not those again. <laughs> yeah, I do that. It's quite funny, actually. In lockdown, I got into a bat. I was doing that far too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And my other half was like to me, you need to get dressed properly. You need to put, a, like, at least put a baggy dress on, but just put something <laughs> yeah. else on. I said, like, okay. Yeah, I don't think it was just us, you know. I think everyone was at it. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so, so how is the campaign going? So I mentioned in the introduction... 70,000 signatures and rising I'm sure it's garnered more signatures now yeah it's it's doing what it's yeah it's doing okay um I I've I yeah mm, I'm like you kind of it depends when you catch me basically okay um so at the moment it's I think it's just a hit maybe just over 100,000 that's fantastic um as of this morning but we I'm kind of finding with it that it's just hard. It's just hard in places. I think the government still don't take it seriously. Um, I think they still don't fully understand eating disorders and the impact that eating disorders have on the whole of society. Um, I don't think they understand kind of the high mortality rates and everything like that. Um, and I think quite often with, at the moment, it just feels like you're getting a lot of stock responses from things. But that said, there is, I guess there is some progress, um, I hosted a government round table a couple of weeks ago and we kind of pulled together like a list of recommendations and actually are looking at whether there's a timeline that we can put in place to really implement a lot of this stuff. But a lot of it becomes just way too political and you end up kind of fighting, not fighting is the right word, but fighting, I guess, with other organisations to actually try and get people to get that, kind of realise that it's a serious issue and it needs that support. 
So you're spearheading this campaign and trying to bring everyone together onto the same yeah. page, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I'm trying to, and so I set up a coalition to try and help do that. Okay. But I'm trying to just, yeah, bring that whole dialogue and that whole conversation together so much more so, so that people do get the right support. And I think within that as well, empowering, empowering people to feel like they can make those decisions. Right. Okay. And it's interesting, isn't it? That there's always, well, there's always division, isn't there, from the different agencies and um, charities and foundations that are already set up. And I think sometimes it's like whoever can shout the loudest wins. Yeah. Which I don't always like. Yeah. Uh, It is getting better though, isn't it? It was interesting that you said no one spoke about eating disorders when you were younger. I'm older than you. No one spoke about eating disorders when I was 17, 18. In fact, I interviewed someone and um, we were talking about, there was a, a girl called Lena Zavaroni, who was a singer and entertainer and actress, and she had anorexia. And we mentioned Karen Carpenter. Those were the kind of people that I knew about. But it seems that in the last two or three years, public awareness is growing and lots of people are talking about it now. Yeah, and I think they are. I think it's, I think my, yeah, I think they are. I think what I want to see is like people more, not just the same people talking about it, not just kind of white females talking about it, but having a much bigger breadth of people talking about it as well. And I feel like the more we talk about it, actually that will help others, yeah. hopefully, yeah, to then feel like they can talk about it too. So for people to sign the petition, the campaign, they would go to your website? Yeah, so the campaign's on change, change.org. So if you go on change.org and just type dump the scales in, um, or um, all the links to it are on my website, so hopevirgo.com, or on my Instagram, which is just hopevirgo underscore. We'll have all that information on our Instagram page as well. Before you go, thank you so much for your candor and insight. What five foods would you take to an island? You have a you have a um, you have a condiment cupboard. You have salt and pepper and olive oil and whatever you need. Yeah. Um, I think I would take eggs. Okay. Um, I love eggs. I like yeah my go to. Um, I would take probably some tuna. Um, or I feel like you might be able to get some fish from the water. Um, okay. So maybe not. Maybe actually, sorry, I'm not going to change. Maybe eggs. Okay. Chocolate. Okay. Nuts. Yeah. Um, what kind of nuts? Porridge. Um, just like, I guess, like a mixed, a mixed bag. Okay. So yeah, like an assort, assortment okay, of nuts. Okay. Um, and then maybe, um, some crumpets, which I'm, yeah, I'm going through a crumpet phase at the moment, kind of one of those foods that you have as a child. And then I feel like I've just rediscovered them again. Yeah. You can get those pikelets as well, which are like the flat crumpets. Oh, I've not seen that. Which maybe you can get, I don't know, a log or something and roll your crumpet into a thin pikelet crumpet. <laughs> okay, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, Hope, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on this Food Thing podcast. And, um, no, thanks so much for having me. Have a wonderful, wonderful wedding day. I'm sure the sun will be shining. It'll be fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know your favourite bit from this episode. Let me know on Instagram at This Food Thing Podcast or join us again in the next episode.